The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. We are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for joining us tonight. I hope everybody's doing well. I want to send a big shout out to everybody tuning in through the TuneIn app, Ustream, LiveMe. And if you're catching the podcasted version of the show, hello to you, good sir. In and, the future. Madam. Think about yeah. that. You're talking to people in the future. We're basically like time travelers. That's a form of time travel, I suppose. I also want to send a quick shout out to our good buddy, Justin Scarred. We were at an event yesterday helping out with a pop-up shop and a silent mm-hmm, auction and whatnot. Mm-hmm. If you don't know Justin and his uh, Random Land series of YouTube videos, definitely check it out. Absolutely. A lot of fun stuff uh, with Justin. We were there with uh, Ernie of Haunted Orange County. Yeah. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. His Random Land series is mainly related to all things Disney, but you can also catch him um, on his, I guess, non-Disney related podcast well, not podcasts, um, YouTube videos, which is uh, youtube.com slash Justin Scard, I believe. As easy as that. Scard with two R's, not scared, as he always makes very clear. <laughs> but yeah, definitely check it out. And like I said, big hello to them. And uh, tonight, actually, our guest tonight has an interesting book on Disney as well, which I'm yet yeah, to read. Yeah. And I uh, actually he has a bunch of books I want to read. Our guest tonight is Walter Bosley, and uh, honestly, his books touch on a lot of topics that I find extremely, extremely fascinating, and tonight we're going to be focusing on one of his books called Origin, The 19th Century Emergence of the 20th Century Breakaway Civilizations, and I'll be honest, I haven't been this excited about a book in a long time. I was fascinated by this story. And I really can't wait to get into it with Walter. So Genevieve, if you would be so kind to introduce tonight's guest. All right. This is taken from um, the Amazon.com bio. Walter Bosley is an investigator of historical occult mysteries, author of pulp fiction novels, and a screenwriter who has appeared on History Channel's Ancient Aliens. After 19 years in national security, Walter Bosley is a licensed private investigator in California, where he also runs his small press publishing company, Lost Continent Library, founded 2002. Bosley has traveled much of the world, both on the job and off, including trips through Mexico and South America with David Hatcher Childress, whose WEX magazine, or WEX, as some people say, has published articles by Bosley. He was born in San Diego, California, and attended SDSU, where he earned a BA in journalism. He's been employed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or as most people say, FBI. And he's an inactive reserve officer in the U.S. Air Force, for which he served as a special agent of the AFOSI while on active duty. And then he worked as a counterterrorism operational consultant for six years following his military service. 
Bozzy spends his time writing fiction and non-fiction. He loves them both alike, as well as investigating strange mysteries in between PI assignments. The latest news about Bosley's projects can always be found on his blogs. That's Empire of the Wheel, empireofthewheel.blogspot.com and Lost Continent Library. That's lostcontinentlibrary.blogspot.com. And honestly, I could never top a resume like that. So with that, I have the incredible honor of welcoming Walter Bosley onto the show. <laughs> Walter, can you hear us okay? Yes, I can. Awesome. Thanks thank for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. No, thank you for joining us. And believe me, uh, we, we are quite excited to have you on tonight. As I was mentioning at, at the top of the show, your book literally uh, uh, captured my attention and my imagination all at the same time. And it was definitely a journey into a mystery that, to be honest, I wasn't too familiar with. And some of the people that pop up in this story are some extremely fascinating individuals. And as I mentioned, I look forward to, to exploring this further with you. That said, let me, let me start off with this. I just for fun did a, a quick Google search of you know, the, the most important achievements that humanity has managed to accomplish in all our history. And in every one of those lists, you find conquering flight. Right, the humans, yeah. you know, uh, the, the Wright brothers and all that. But here in your book, you're making an argument that could essentially rewrite the history of flight and really human history for that matter. So let's start breaking this down. One of the things that we read in your book from the get-go, it's this mysterious group of individuals. They go by the name of Nimza. Can you tell us a little bit about what was this group in what activities were they involved, and what does the name NIMSA mean? Well, that's uh, no easy trick to just say a little bit about them because they are so, they can be so encompassing. But um, essentially, the first source we have for NIMSA, which is an acronym, N Y M Z A, is an interesting gentleman by the name of Charles Delschau. Um, he was a German immigrant in the mid-19th century, the 1850s, um, from uh, specifically, I believe, uh, Brandenburg, what was Prussia. Uh, this was before the modern unification of Germany as we know it. And he told a fascinating story in a personal diary and book of artworks that he started in the 1890s and finished in the 1920s. He died in 1923. And in these books, he tells this amazing tale of another group of German immigrants uh, operating in Northern California by Yosemite, west of Yosemite National Park in Tuolumne County, um, who in the 1850s were experimenting with the rudimentary aspects of anti-gravity flight. Now, this is the decade prior to the American Civil War. And Delshaw claimed um, to have been a representative of this mysterious group, NIMSA, um, sent to California to 
checkup, as it were, on this group of gentlemen playing with flight that called themselves the Sonora Aero Club. Aero, A-E-R-O, as in aeroplane and such, aerospace. And that's really the first time in known documentation we hear of this word uh, NIMSA and this acronym NIMSA. But um, since you've read Origin and my other works, and, and I'm by no means the only guy out there, I stand on the shoulders of about six or seven guys before me, um, we have been able to extrapolate through the details um, a lot more about NIMSA. To answer the question as to who they were, big picture, they are just simply, according to Delshaw, our original source, a group of very secretive backers, investors, as, as it were, um, in flying machines based or headquartered, I should say, in Berlin. So they were a German, definitely a German organization, um, according to our original source. Now, obviously, they, they were dealing with these German immigrants here in the States. And what I have done to further define NIMSA, N-Y-M-Z-A, is to offer a German transliteration and translation, which I'm sure we'll get into, that further defines kind of an organization within an organization, okay? A NIMSA within the larger NIMSA. And this smaller NIMSA is very specifically a Prussian nationalist organization of investors and industrialists from Germany who were focusing on um, establishing a technological foundation for their vision, their dream of a unified Germany, okay? And that essentially, in a great big giant nutshell, is NIMSA. You know, it's funny because it, I think uh, most folks probably heard that explanation and they could probably see it as foreshadowing kind of where this uh, conversation is going to go. Genevieve? Um, yeah, I have a question and it's based on... The fact that there seem to be so many or at least um, several different, very different interpretations of the word or acronym, depending on how you interpret it, NIMSA. And mm -hmm. I'd like to know, at least as far as your knowledge goes, where did modern researchers first stumble across the word or acronym NIMSA? Basically, where was it first encountered in recent history and by whom? It was discovered by a gentleman named Pete Navarro, who happened upon Charles Delshaw's journals and artwork um, in a trash heap in an antique shop. It, these things were going to be discarded. Uh, this was around 1970, 71, okay? And the, uh, as I said before, the first mention of NIMSA, you know, in known history, documentation was in these books, these Delshaw books dating back to the period between the 1890 and 1923. When Pete Navarro found these, he uh, bought several of them. There, there are several of these volumes. He bought a few of them, bought several more. And uh, what's interesting is a college, a local college back in the 70s had done um, an exhibit 
in in a science fair museum type of thing. They've done an exhibit on the history of flight and um, to uh, uh, demonstrate that interesting period before the Wright brothers when there were actually a lot of people, you know, trying all sorts of different things. Um, the Del Shaw art books were uh, made a part of that by some students who um, had also been to the antique shop and, you know, got copies of this. And those books ended up in the possession of the, uh, forgive my pronunciation, it's either Demenil or Demenil, um, a foundation there in Texas. This was all in Texas, by the way. Now, if you look at your history and lore of the JFK assassination uh, milieu in theory, you will find the uh, Demonel or Demenel Foundation uh, family um, on the list of interesting characters in that. So I'll just kind of throw that bomb and leave that there, and it's their family's foundation that was very interested in some of these Delshaw books. Well, to bring it back to Pete Navarro, could only purchase as many books as he could get. The others ended up with the Demon Elves and such. And uh, the first book about Del Shell, or that included or, or mentioned Del Shell's uh, stuff um, and Nimza and such, uh, was uh, Tim Schwartz and Sean Castile's book published by Tim Beckley um, about this legend of a 1908 flight to Mars aboard a Tesla airship. Now, that's another topic, which I do get into later in the book in Origin, but within that book, uh, Castile and Schwartz, uh, you know, talk a little bit about Del Shaw and, and the Nimza. But then we have Dennis Crenshaw's book from a few years back that he wrote with Pete Navarro, um, The Secrets of Del Shaw. And now you you got to figure, uh, you know, almost a hundred years, you know, had passed since Delshell wrote this stuff down and did this artwork uh, depicting all these flying machines that had been built, he says, in the 1850s. Um, nearly a century had passed, you know, 70, 60, 70 years after his death before anybody was discovering um, these books of his, these diaries. That's why you don't see it mentioned anywhere in any sources prior to Pete Navarro finding this in 1970. And uh, really, not until, uh, you know, books about the 1890s airship mystery uh, got popular in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And then it pops up in, uh, there, there's a book by Theo Pymans about John W. Keeley, who also fooled with uh, anti-gravity stuff in the 19th century. And his associates in the, 18, the late 19th century, 1880s, 1890s, in New York you find NIMSA mentioned there. So NIMSA, this interesting organization, pops up uh, somehow connected to the 1890s airship mystery. Now, I, of course, in origin, my book, I attempt to thread this Sonora Aero Club of the 1850s and their flying machine legend to the uh, 1890s airship mystery and then into the 20th century. Um, so... Again, it really, really started with uh, Charlie Delshaw and then Pete Navarro finding this in the 1970s. And in, in probably the last, you know, decade or so, there's a few of us that have been trying to, you know, maybe shed some light 
on this mystery. As far as other interpretations or translations of what Nimza means, um, uh, there was an attempt to translate it from the perspective of it being associated with um, New York and the 1890s airship mystery milieu, which you know, allegedly involved some investors from New York. That's how they were vaguely identified. So at one time, you know, it was put forward that NIMSA meant the New York Motor Zephyr Association. And that wasn't bad. That, that was a very good attempt. The problem with that is, is that our original source, Charles Delshaw, dating back to the 1890s, made it very clear that NIMSA was headquartered in Germany, in Berlin. It was a German organization. So despite the New York connection in the 1890s, I determined that NIMSA had to have meant something German. This is my proposed theory on what the translation of the acronym means. And of course, jumping into that opened up a whole big can of worms, as you discovered in the book. Mm -hmm. Right. And for the listeners, could you explain what the likelihood is that your interpretation is, at least in your eyes, um, likely to be the, the most accurate in comparison to, say, um, rather convoluted but nevertheless interesting interpretations such as the, the namelessness demonic idea? Oh, yes. Are you referring to the idea of the Nimsa theory mm -hmm. of Seshari? Yes, yes. So that, it's, yeah. it's just taken oh. like the, the, you know, two different terms and combined them yeah. as one. Well, that, that takes us, uh, by the way, Seshari is a very uh, close friend and associate of mine um, through my publishing company. I'm the publisher of his books. Oh, wow. And he did, he did that analysis um, in one of his books, Metamorphosis, and then he extrapolated a, l a little further at my request based on data that, you know, I provided and stuff I was uncovering. But it brings up the very good point, which Origin goes into, and by the way, my new book is all about this, um, and, and then some. Um, so this is all fresh in my mind. We're talking now about... I, I said a moment ago, an organization within an organization, okay? Think of Matryoshka dolls, okay? Those little Russian dolls where, you know, there's several of them that fit in the large one and, you know, each inside the other, okay? Mm -hmm. This fits kind of like a Matryoshka doll. There is the specific Prussian NIMSA within the larger mysterious organization NIMSA. Now, the larger organization, I use... Delshaw's spelling N-Y-M-Z-A to represent that, okay? Because there are reasons to suspect that it is a much older organization and more widespread and bigger than just the Prussian uh, organization's involvement. Now, for the smaller organization, the smaller NIMSA, what I call the very specifically Prussian um, uh, chapter of the larger organization, I have come up with a spelling which is really drawn from a transliteration, which I'll explain, of NIMSA, and it is spelled N-J-M-Z-A, usually with a little a, according to my German 
scholars that I consulted. And how did I get there? Well, um, a lot, most people have heard of you know the word translation. That's when, as you know, you guys know, you translate literally um, the meaning of a word from one language to another. But um, there's also transliteration. Transliteration is when you take, and this is a nutshell explanation. I know there's, there might be some professional linguists out there. Please forgive me, but, you know, I'm trying to simplify this. A transliteration is where you take a word from a language and provide that word, a proper pronunciation of that word, for speakers of another language, okay? Now, the most uh, blatant example I can give, and I give this in the book, would be, for instance, from Russian to English, okay? Now, in Russian, they use the Cyrillic alphabet, okay? And that's a different alphabet than ours, kind of like Greek. Well, um, in a transliteration from a Russian word in Cyrillic to an English word in the, in the alphabet used by English speakers, okay, you would use the letters in the English alphabet that sound like those letters in the Russian alphabet, okay? So, for instance, the word cat. I think that's an example I use in the book. Um, you know, in the English alphabet, it's going to be a K, a T. And um, in Cyrillic, it's, you know, you, you, you see the K and the, the A, but their T looks like an M, kind of looks like our M and such. So you get the idea. So what I did was I analyzed this and I thought, okay, Del Shao, back in the 1890s when he was writing this out, it's very possible what he was trying to do was come up with a spelling that the English-speaking readers someday of his journal would pronounce Nimza properly. Okay. And could I, I'm really sorry, I hate interrupting, but just um, oh. to explain it um, a tiny little more to the listeners right now, as an example, the J in German is a Y sound. So it's very yeah. similar to the Y sound in English. Yeah. It, so if you spell it, yogurt yeah. in German, it's actually with a J, even though it's pronounced pretty much the same way. So it's it's basically you get the same sound, but it's a different letter. Sorry. <laughs> good, good, good timing because I was just getting there. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. The reason it's N J M Z A is because N M Z and A are going to have the same sounds essentially pronunciation in the English alphabet, but the Y, see, the Y throws us off, but it is indeed. Uh, J, because when I was trying to do this, I asked myself, okay, what, what are the words in German that could possibly translate this organization, which, according to Delschau and the data that I've come up with, was a distinctly German organization that was building flying machines for potential uh, military or industrial exploitation and on and on and so forth. And, of course, what I came up with was, uh, 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 I always have to look at it, it's, it's a nationalistisch Jagdflugzeug Maschinen um, Salamzat. Salamzat. <laughs> Again, forgive my, uh, forgive, forgive my German, but um, it was hunting, flying thing, or uh, uh, flying pursuit, flying 
you know, pursuit vehicle. Right. That's why the J is in there, because the Yagd, which is the route for hunting, pursuit, and, and what have you. So I, I, I think, I, I hope that makes that clear. Definitely, definitely, it does. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned anti-gravity, and I think that that is something that's really important to touch on when we talk about these mysterious airships, because I think when you mention airships in, you know, 1800s, most people will probably think of a balloon. Yes. But what we're talking about here is definitely not some hot air balloon. This, these were mechanical apparatus that yes. uh, achieves flight, but not just flight in the sense of the Wright brothers. Like you mentioned, this is anti-gravity. Can you tell us about that? Well, exactly. These were not hot air balloons. These were not Zeppelins by the time we get to the 1890s. You know, these were not dirigibles either. Uh, people in the 19th century, they knew what a balloon was, okay, a hot air balloon. They, they were used to seeing these things. And as you get to the late 19th century, they also knew what dirigibles were, okay? Right. So when the witnesses were seeing these things, or, for example, when Delshall's describing these things, uh, you know, this is a guy, and these are people who know the difference between what was being described by Delshall and AERO and ARO, and, of course, later on, decades later, what was being described during the airship mystery. And essentially... In the 1850s uh, context of the Sonora Aero Club, what you had were essentially proof of concept, okay? There's a chart in the book that you've seen, and I, I like to refer to. The 1850s Arrow, okay, was like the Ford Model T, a very rudimentary, simple automobile, okay, very just proof of concept. It's got four wheels, it's got an engine, it's got a steering mechanism, you know, and it's got a place to sit your butt down and ride in it, okay? Right. Very basic automobile, okay? But by the time you get to the 1890s, you're talking about much bigger objects um, with larger cabins, as it were, and many more moving parts, okay? Now, what's interesting is in the 1850s version, you have Delshaw talking about often that the device worked on a chemical reaction to a fuel which had a secret formula, which the leader of the group was the only one who knew the, knew the ingredients of. This fluid was applied to a rotating drum, and that mechanism, that basic mechanism, is what caused the um, anti-gravity to um, uh, activate, so to speak. All right? Now, in the 1890s, when you hear the descriptions, you, the, the, the spinning, okay, the rotating mechanism, so to speak, you know, the basic idea of that is still very much part of the descriptions that you hear um, from people who got to see these things up close, by the way. Or remember, the, the crews were human beings who came down and talked to people and gladly showed them their airships. But there were, there were still these spinning parts. But the difference was this time was the witnesses reported um, kind of a, a buzzing sound or something that would be more like um, an electric uh, motor kind of thing, maybe a you know, electromagnetic kind of technology, but there was still the spin and the rotation 
that was a part of it. And these things did not just lumber along slowly or glide slowly like hot air balloons or the later dirigibles. They moved pretty quickly. Um, Delshaw talks about the arrows just kind of, you know, going up pretty fast, and they would fly them around and can maneuver them, you know, at will. And the later 1890s airship mystery, they talk about these things, you know, just as zipping away really fast. And in the reports, the crews, the pilots, pilots of these things talked about flying from Utah down to Cuba or even into South America and back in the same day. I mean, think about that. The 1890s, this was not a a blimp or a Zeppelin that could do that. Okay, so we're, we're talking about some guys who had been dabbling in something that they were, for the most part, keeping to themselves as far as the specifics on how it worked. I have a quick question related to, um, you know, what we were talking about a few minutes ago. And just playing devil's advocate here, what's the proper probability that some of the claimed Delshaw writings and diagrams, etc., um, are faked? I mean, you hear a story like someone found these books, etc., in a dumpster, and suddenly published them, and the first thing you think is, at least if it happened in modern day, you'd be like, okay, wait, wait a minute, where did you get these from? Are they actually real? Um, how do we know they're real? Ah, uh, well, that's a very good question, uh, because there, are, there is a school of thought that says Del Chow was nothing but what we call an outsider artist, and that all of this is fantasy and made up. But I made an interesting discovery myself which is in my book, Origin. Um, And if someone can find a previous uh, mention of this, documentation of this, please let me know. Uh, There is an interesting detail that Charlie Delshaw included in a few of his drawings, almost several of them, uh, maybe like half a dozen, when he shows the, the rotating, spinning, drum aspect of the mechanism in the 1850s, there is one particular uh, arrow flying machine that he, of course, claims was built and flown in the 1850s, which shows a bell-shaped spinning uh, apparatus that's part of the propulsion anti-gravity system. Now, here's what's interesting about that. He proposes this, he draws this in the, uh, sometime between 1890 and 1923. Now, zip ahead several decades, and Charlie Delshaw's stuff is still unknown to history, okay? Uh, except to some college students and this interesting wealthy foundation down in Texas um, in their museum. And you have a guy, Igor Kwiatkowski, who is the first known guy to write about the Nazi bell, the mysterious bell, the glocka, which was described as a bell-shaped object that spun and used a mysterious serum or liquid applied to it. And one of the alleged results of this bell device was anti-gravity. And this did not emerge until Kwiatkowski's uh, research, um, I believe in the 
1990s. And then, of course, it's it's mentioned by, uh, I, I think, um, Nick Cook, and then Joseph Farrell has written about it extensively. Okay? Now, a couple of years ago, when I was working on my presentation that became the book Origin, I was looking through my copy of Delshell's art, which was sent to me by Stephen Romano, who published this fantastic book on Delshell's art. And I was stunned when I found this work of Delshell's that has the bell-shaped object, and it describes exactly, you know, the same type of uh, mechanism and res- result that later the Nazis in the 1930s and 40s are alleged to have done, okay? And no one had really noticed or pointed that out till, you know, I did in 2015, that here it it appears these German immigrants were using essentially, again, a rudimentary proof of concept version of the bell, which ends up, oh, 70 or 80 years later, apparently being developed by Nazi Germany. So therein we have a clue that Delshell might very well have been telling the truth because, as I do in my book, I show the line of development and how, through connections and associations through the decades, how that rudimentary bell technology could have been passed from the Prussian NIMSA to the Nazi scientists in the next century. That's really a lot of what, um, as you know, Origin discusses, that connection. I mean, we're talking, you know, the Prussian organization that was all for German unification, okay, and then their connections and the people that would have been associated with that, based on my research, are also the people who in the late 19th century and early 20th century were involved in the rise of the Nazi party and involved with these you know, the Nazi uh, science milieu. So it looks like the bell is that smoking gun that we're looking for when we ask, was Delshaw telling the truth or was he making it all up? That is a very, very good point to make. And like I said, uh, it definitely shows how this technology was being, uh, um, I don't know if passed down was the word, was definitely moving along. Yes. Now, one of the things that I just want to ask you to tell the listeners about is that, well, we're talking about these airships. What evidence do we have that these things were flying in the air? You mentioned a newspaper report from uh, the late 1800s of somebody that witnessed an airship and got a chance to talk to the two-man crew, I think it was, that was operating this this uh, apparatus, and I believe it was uh, Tillman and Dolbear, and this happened in April 19th, 1897. Can you tell us yes. about that incident? Because I think it really sheds a lot of light into how these machines moved and who was operating them. Yes, absolutely. That right there, you talk about a smoking gun or an inconvenient uh, fact that, uh, you know, Skeptics will have a hard time explaining this away. Um, You're talking about the, uh, of course, the legendary 1890s airship mystery, very specifically referred to as the airship mystery of 1897. And these sightings began actually in late 1896 and went through the year 1897. They were seen throughout, uh, you know, the, the... 
I think two thirds or half of the uh, geographic United States, um, west of the Mississippi, most of them. And again, these were flying machines that were crewed and manned by human beings. This was not anything to do with extraterrestrials. Um, in recent years, there's been some researchers that have tried to haul in the 1890s airship mystery into that, that ET camp, and that's flat out a mistake because, you know, these were human crews. But specifically, Tillman and Dolbear, they are reportedly the pilots of an airship that lands, and, uh, you know, a gentleman is given, you know, a tour and a description of their flying machine. And, uh, you know, off they go. Okay, now here's what's interesting. Um, Tillman and Dolbear, Samuel Tillman and Amos Dolbear, are real guys. Google them. There's their pictures. Okay, Amos Dolbear was a uh, scientist inventor. I believe he went to Wesleyan University. Um, it, it is... I believe alleged that he invented a telephone before Alexander Graham Bell and had a dispute with Bell. I mean, this is a real guy. Right. And um, then, of course, there's Samuel Tillman, Colonel Samuel Tillman, United States Army, who was um, an instructor uh, later in his career at West Point and became commandant of West Point, I believe, during World War One. He's a real guy. He was a real guy. Um, and now here's what's interesting. You know, Tillman and Dolbear are not rolling off the lips of people today. I would say 99% of your listening audience has never heard of these guys till tonight. Okay? So they weren't any more well-known then than they are now. So for a witness to pull those guys out of a hat is a very curious thing. All right. Um, in my mind, this points to the validity of this report. This says that Samuel Tillman and Amos Dolbear were flying this machine around. Now, what I've done in my book is provide the details of both these men's careers, particularly Colonel Tillman. Tillman was a, a cartographer, a, a geographer. He was a chemist. Okay, um, he specialized throughout his career from the time he was a young army officer and throughout his career in the very things that can be associated with this airship mystery. Um, he was also involved with the organization that uh, went on to found the, um, the National Geographic Society subsequently. So he was an explorer um, on top of everything else. And... To me, uh, the presence of Tillman and Dolbear in one of these reports is very important. That uh, That's in the, you can check that in the validation column in the debate on the airship mystery as to whether these, these things were real or not. It's really fascinating. Like I said, for me, it was very important that we touch on that because, as you mentioned, these are actual individuals that lived and had a life and apparently were involved in some really incredible stuff way, way, way ahead of their time. Yeah, and I actually have a question mainly for everyone listening right now, which I should have asked a lot earlier. Please define the term breakaway civilization for us. Oh, well, um, I, I, I always start my definition by referring to 
uh, everyone to Richard Dolan's definition because he's the one that coined the phrase, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But essentially, paraphrasing what he said is, a breakaway civilization is a group or organization of people who possess the, the finances and material resources to establish and develop a technology independent of the known technology okay in our you know world our known world our known civilization is a better word and um they're able to further develop essentially their own society as it were to where they can operate mostly independently now even dolan says that um, particularly when you're talking in the context of a secret space program, because that has a different definition. Uh, a breakaway civilization would possess a secret space program is usually how, how these things are defined. But the breakaway, they could still come and go among us and in our world, but they simply, you know, possess the means to have their own thing that they generally keep to themselves to whatever degree they choose. And we have a very interesting uh, contribution in our chat, which has been going on um, in the background here. Mr. Gross says, a group of elite intellectuals who want to become immortal, like the people who get rich off of inventions and stuff. <laughs> so that was a contribution in our chat. And I think that is an interesting way to view it as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, that... Uh That would definitely be, and I, I'm convinced, and um, that's one of the things I'm getting into in greater detail in my new book that I'm working on right now. But uh, the, the elitist that they're referring to, um, in my view, are definitely a subset within what I identify as NIMSA. And like I said, I'll be getting into that in greater detail in my new book. But I, I agree with that, uh, with that comment. Yes, within this greater, under this greater NIMSA umbrella, um, who I see as a group of globalists, you definitely have these elitists that are, for instance, uh, you know, doing research on the, the human genome to map DNA so that they can uh, develop medical technologies. So, yeah, they can extend their, um, their, their uh, lifespans and maybe find uh, immortality through uh, transhumanism. These are the guys that are pushing transhumanism, okay, the marriage of you know, the human being and technology. Um, absolutely. I would agree with that. But I do see them as a subset within NIMSA. Um, as you know from my book, I think there are two breakaway civilizations, at least the way I see it, there's two that I'm dealing with in my research. And, you know, when you start getting into the motives and such, um, I, I think there's a difference between the two. But, uh, yeah, elitists are in the mix. Before we go to break here in a few minutes, Walter, I wanted to go back to NIMSA and what made flight and these airships possible. And it seems that at the head of this NIMSA group, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Peter Menes, and I hope I'm saying that name right. And apparently he held the secret 
that made flight possible in these machines and it involved, as you mentioned earlier, a mysterious form of fuel. Can you tell us about that? Who was this Peter Menes and what did he know? Peter Menes was one of the German immigrants uh, who came to California in the mid-19th century, the 1850s, and was the, uh, one of the main founders of the Sonora Aero Club. And um, when you look at the story of the Sonora Aero Club, according to Delshaw, while they were initially, again, under the aegis or umbrella of this mysterious German NIMSA organization, Peter Menes and the leaders of the Sonora Aero Club became opposed to the NIMSA, uh, opposed to their aims and objectives um, and how they wanted to use this technology. And uh, that may have cost him his life. Wow. It, it reminds me of a, I mean, I, I, I hope I, I'm not cheapening the conversation here by saying it reminds me of uh, an animated film called Steam Boy where uh, uh, yes. they yeah. had this technology and there were people out trying to get it, use it for more um, nefarious purposes, I guess you could say. Oh, exactly, exactly. You know what? It's been a few years since I watched that film, and it sounds like I need to watch it again. <laughs> that makes two of us, honestly. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask um, at least one question that's slightly off topic, but since we're going to break, I think the people in the chat deserve it. Someone who seems to be um, definitely a fan of yours just wants to know what your um, feelings are about the Mandela effect. Uh, wow, that is that is a, a, a bigger, deeper conversation, <laughs> um, you know, that I will tell you I've had many times with uh, Joseph Farrell late into the night in the wee hours of the morning. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, oh, it very much interests me. I mean, it's definitely a fascinating thing, and maybe maybe we can do another show yeah, where we discuss that. Yeah, we definitely that. should, because people in the chat are really interested in what you think, and they're really getting into this conversation as well, so I think another show should be lined up yeah, soon. Totally. <laughs> I, I, I definitely, to answer them more directly, I definitely think there's something going on there. Okay. That's the yeah. summary, right? There's no other way to summarize something as big as that. <laughs> Walter, we're going to take a quick break. So if you'd be so kind just to hang on the line. And then when we come back, I want to keep digging into this mystery. And folks at home, definitely get a copy of Walter's book, Origin, the 19th Century Emergence of the 20th Century Breakaway Civilizations, because it, it's a fascinating read. So, Walter, would you be so kind to hang on the line? Absolutely. Awesome. So we're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to go out with, uh, with a song that I haven't heard in a long time, and it's one of my favorites. And uh, this is uh, MDFMK, which is KMFDM, but backwards. And uh, for a, I think for a couple of years, due to legal reasons, they had to uh, kind of go under this name. And, but they released some really cool songs. This one's called Missing Time. This is West of the Rockies. Our guest tonight is Walter Bosley and Boy. This is a fascinating conversation, so stick around. We got a whole lot more to cover. Here we go. West of the Rockies With Frank Open, open Your, your, your mind, mind. 
This is the second hour of uh, West of the Rockies. It's been really interesting. It's been really fascinating looking into mystery airships. Let me do a little bit of back announcing. Uh, what you heard there, that was KMFDM, or backwards, with the song Missing Time from another cool little cult classic called uh, Heavy Metal 2000. I think a lot of people may be familiar with the first heavy metal that came out, I think, in the 70s. That also had a, a killer soundtrack. But if you haven't checked out Heavy Metal 2000, definitely check it out. Amazing soundtrack as well. There's songs by Pantera, Billy Idol, obviously MDFMK. I highly recommend it, man. One of my favorite soundtracks, that's for sure. And then you heard a little bit of Ghost with a Square Hammer. One of the, the more interesting and exciting... Uh, I guess you can call them an occult band, right? Yeah, yeah. In in the very like poppy sense of the term. Yeah, I, uh, I call them like the goth Beatles. They're really catchy, but they feel like into like masonry <laughs> and some of the yeah those kind of topics. I mean, and Mask Slevin there, who um, is really coming through in this um, show with all his knowledge about breakaway civilizations he's saying killer movies you just mentioned oh really yeah no that's uh yeah they're all they're all great films definitely check them out it's all uh cool music there's some interesting stuff out there as always i'm engineer frank on twitter west of the rockies on facebook uh don't forget to subscribe to the show on uh youtube youtube.com forward slash w-o-t-r radio uh and also follow us on twitter at WOTR Radio, and visit the website, which, uh, Genevieve, can you take a wild guess what the website could be? Oh, I can't, no. No? no. Well, let me give you a hint. It's WOTRradio.com. That's not a hint, that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like to make things easy. Uh, so always, I'm joined by Genevieve. You can follow her on Twitter, at Genevieve Uway, and you can catch her here every Thursday night, hosting her very own show, No Added Flavors. Music, fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more. And Genevieve, you're monitoring the chat. What's uh, What are things looking in there? Is um, it the madhouse it usually is? Yeah, well, honestly, I'm seeing other people like really pop up with this topic. They seem to be definitely very interested, uh, definitely in Walter Bosley. And they're really excited that he's been on because we didn't pre-announce it as a surprise. And they are going very yes, mad Yes, I saw excited. a lot of excitement when they were like, yeah. oh, that's Walter Bosley. And it is Walter Bosley. And just to prove it, let me get Walter Bosley back on the line. Walter, you're obviously a writer and a researcher, and uh, you have many books uh, available right now. Where can people get your books? Well, my books, uh, this is very easy. They're available in one place, and that is print-on-demand at my publishing company's page at Lulu. Dot com l u l u dot com you can put my name in um, you can put uh, any of the titles of the books in and uh, they will pop up specifically to the book or my publishing company's page they're print on demand so yeah it'll take you you know a couple of weeks to get your book because they have to print it up and then they got to ship it to you they offer express shipping so you can shorten that time but I, I no longer offer the digital books. I think um, I had so many people telling me they preferred printed anyway, so that's the way that's the way I went on that. It's like vinyl records. Uh, I think printed media is definitely making a comeback. I am definitely a big fan of holding a book in your hands and just mm -hmm. being able to flip through it. 
It's like a vinyl, you know, when you crack yeah. open a, a vinyl record, they just smell good. They're just honestly, <laughs> and in the past on the show, we've been known to still buy the physical book, even once we've purchased the digital version, because yeah. no, it just doesn't replace it. Absolutely, like even not. if you just want it in your collection, just. Oh, yeah. Because you want I'm proud it of there. my bookshelf. Yeah, exactly. I'd also like it. to add that, you know, for those of you who want to, because to, I'm a micro press publisher. I've published five or six other authors, so I'm not just a vanity press, all Walter Bosley all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems that way, but I've published five or six other authors, but I'm very micro press. I'm a one man operation. Um, as good as some of my books look, it looks like I got a whole staff of people, but, uh, you know, it's just me. And uh, if you're the kind of person that likes to support authors in micropress, um, this is one of the reasons why I left Amazon. They are not good for small publishers or authors. Um, right. I won't go into the details, but they're, they're just not. So that's why I opted to go print on demand. And you'll find there's a lot of other small publishers and, and authors that are uh, going that route because of this. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, it might take a little longer. It might cost a little bit more than a digital book, but you're going to get a very nicely printed physical book in your hand. And I, I think it's worth the difference. Absolutely. And we've got Mr. Slevin in the chat again saying Latitude 33 was an amazing book. So I guess thank you for No him. spoilers though cuz I still yeah, I want to yeah, read yeah. I haven't read it yet and I really want to read oh, it. Oh no no he's going on about it and he's so <laughs> excited to be listening chat. so yes he says thank you. <laughs> well I'll tell you Frank it's it's where that's where it all started for me with the nonfiction. I was really? writing screenplays and novels, um, and my first nonfiction book was the Disneyland book, and that book um, really led to all the other stuff. Wow. <laughs> That's a story in itself. So after you read that, uh-huh. I'll, you know, I'll talk to you guys about that story. Oh, yeah, believe me, I can't wait to, to read it, especially now that it sounds like this was a catalyst for your subsequent research. Even more exciting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, real quick, before we get back into the conversation, talking about your books, uh, I believe you uh, recently published, yeah, just uh, a few months back this year, another book called Destination Carcosa. Why don't you tell our listeners about that book and what are you tackling in this one? Oh, um, that one's one of the ones that's uh, near and dear to my heart. When I was working on doing the research and writing my book on the lost expedition of Sir Richard Francis Burton, um, what popped up on the radar in a big, very curious way was Ambrose Bierce, the American author, who um, literature geeks will be familiar with Mr. Bierce and his contribution to uh, American uh, uh, literature. And um, he popped up in a very fascinating way, and I I was kind of doing a little side research on him after that as I finished the Burton book, and then as I did origin. Um, I, I couldn't wait to dive in to what I had stumbled upon with Ambrose Bierce. But essentially, um, what that book is about is I attempt to, um, well, I just flat out propose that Ambrose Bierce um, was a, a, an intelligence agent for the U.S. government um, ever since his Civil War duty 
through the rest of his life, and that he was involved with the airship mystery milieu, and this stuff, um, specifically the German NIMSA activities, see how it all ties, um, was very much a part of his disappearance. Because your listeners may not know, Ambrose Bierce is most famous for having disappeared in 1913, never to be found again. He got on his horse, he crossed a bridge in El Paso, Texas, rode into Mexico, wrote one letter um, in December of 1913, and was never heard from again. His body never found. There's been theories based on slim, very weak um, uh, testimony, not even evidence. Okay? And what I do in my book is I propose my theory about his disappearance. I propose my theory about his life. Because as I dove into the, the details of his life, a guy from my perspective, think back to the resume, my resume that uh, uh, Genevieve read earlier, from my perspective, Mr. Beers was more than meets the eye. So wow. that's what that book's about. And oh, I'm real excited about it. It was released um, earlier this summer. Well, I think uh, folks are definitely going to have fun uh, browsing your books, and uh, I definitely encourage them to, to pick up a couple of uh, if they can, because you have done research into some stuff that I don't think too many people might be uh, familiar with. Because when we talk about anti-gravity technology, the first thing I think that comes to people's mind is aliens and reverse engineering and, and black projects. And to read a book where you make a strong case that this technology has been around for way longer than that. For me, yeah. at least, literally uh, blew my mind. Um, and let me get into that because so far it seems or, or it would seem to, to the listener that what we're talking about here are flying machines uh, designed and put together by humans, flown by humans. So I'm pretty sure there's people in the chat or people listening at home wondering, well, you know, what about alien technology? What about Roswell? What about, you know, the ancient aliens? Is there room for them in this uh, theory you put forth of the mystery airships? Yes, there is. And I talk about it in, of course, Origin, and also in Empire of the Wheel 3, The Nameless Ones, where I first presented uh, Cesare's analysis of NIMSA, and um, however, and here's the big however, mm -hmm. okay, the extraterrestrial, for lack of a better word, origin of the knowledge that led to this technology, in my opinion, based on my research, my analysis of all this, is so far back in human history that essentially by the time we get to the 19th century, this is a reconstructed, not really reverse engineered, but a reconstructed technology, secret technology, okay, that was pieced together from the uh, scraps of knowledge and remnants of um, what I call the forgotten civilization. That is the advanced civilization that, you know, 
clearly was out there. When we see the megalithic sites and the, the places they go to on ancient aliens and the things they talk about, these megalithic sites, and I, I'm sure your listeners, they're familiar with the basic theme, the right. idea that there was this technologically advanced civilization prior to those we know of. Um, what I get into in my works is that the, the various secret societies and secret orders, you know, the Knights Templar, the Freemasons and, and such, um, they were all in pursuit of these clues of these remnants um, uh, of, of this lost technology. And uh, the, the idea through the ages was to rebuild this stuff, you know, reestablish civilization in the likeness of that. Um, but what I argue is, is that, you know, the people that think Viracocha, think Quetzalcoatl and legends like that, I argue that these beings came, yes, from another planet, another world, off this planet. They were advanced. They came here, they had their influence on humanity, okay? And um, their influence is how humanity, humankind, built this, what is now forgotten civilization, okay? Um, and in our times, in, in, you know, known human history, we have humankind certain among us, certain numbers, certain members of societies and such, you know, quietly and as secretly as possible, seeking this stuff out and, and trying to put it back together. And what I argue is this is where groups like NIMSA, groups like the Sonora Aero Club, individuals like Peter Menace, um, Colonel Tillman and, and Amos Dolbear and, and wh who, you know, all these guys mentioned in this stuff, you know, they were part of these organizations or they were part of, you know, the tradition, um, you know, seeking this stuff out. These, these things, these technologies that they developed in secret, these are the remnants of that long ago ET influence on humanity. Wow. I find that extremely interesting. In your book, you mention uh, one of our favorite authors and researchers, uh, Graham Hancock and also uh, uh, David Childress and uh, other authors that have researched ancient civilizations that possessed a high degree of technology, perhaps even higher than the one that we possess today. Would you say that something like the, uh, and I hope I'm not butchering the name too bad, but I believe it's the Antikythera Mechanism. Could that be evidence of advanced technology in ancient times? And if that is the case, does that mean that the civilizations rise and fall in this planet in almost like a, a, a cyclical fashion? Is that really our history? Yes, that's, I, I, I do think that. The Antikythera device, um, I think one of two things about it. It either was an actual or is is um, possibly an actual artifact of this forgotten civilization. And let, let, me, let me define it again. This forgotten civilization was a, a, an Earth-based human, humankind civilization, okay? They were influenced. They were influenced by these extraterrestrial beings, extraterrestrial humans, by the way, that's a whole other part of the conversation, okay, but this forgotten civilization is very much a human civilization, okay, the Antikythera device, in my opinion, is either a remnant of that actual forgotten civilization, meaning it was down there that long, or, or it is a remnant of one of the secret developments in the past in our known history, but either way, 
yes, in my opinion, it represents what we're talking about here, this lost technology. Absolutely. Incredible. Incredible. And Walter, I think it's very important to um, at least elucidate to our listeners what is meant by extraterrestrial because people, in the same way that UFO has a certain stigma attached to it, extraterrestrial mm -hmm. does as well. And at the base of it, really, extraterrestrial just means not on Earth, not of the Earth. And in its simplest form, it's not quite as weird and as creepy as people will have it. So could you right. um, talk about how the gods are, by definition, at least the gods that we often hear about up in the sky, mm -hmm. are by definition extraterrestrial? Yes, I, I, and, and you defined it, you know, very clearly there. It just literally means people have to start thinking of the word extraterrestrial with a small e, okay? And, uh, yeah, it just simply means something or someone who is not of this earth, or, you know, originally or, or presently. Now, I have a personal opinion that I think the dirty little secret of, you know, the, the things out there that, you know, the authorities or whoever knows about, you know, the UFOs and the aliens and such. I think one of the dirty little secrets is that there are there are or is a human civilization that's extraterrestrial. I mean, exactly as human as we are. Okay, now people will say, here's what's interesting. Um, and, you know, when you brought this up, what I thought of people automatically when you say extraterrestrial, they think of the greys or they think of, you know, some little green man or such. Right. Okay? Um, but, and they'll argue, well, Walter, that's ridiculous. There's no way in hell that human beings exactly like us could ever develop on any other planet than Earth. And my reply to that is, okay, Mr. Science Guru, um, name me one scientist who has visited every habitable planet in the entire universe. Right and has personally verified that there's not one single human being just like us that uh, has developed, you know, that they've proven that they haven't developed anywhere else in the universe, then they can say that. I think the conclusion that there could possibly be no humans exactly like us developed on any other planet than Earth is the most ridiculously ignorant thing that can be said in an era where, as far as we know, human beings have only gone to the moon and um, secretly have, you know, maybe gone to Mars. So, you know, exploration <laughs> has barely begun, and, you know, we can't say that there aren't humans like us. Now, regarding the issue of the advanced ones, um, I think you have a case, and this is where the God description comes in. I think you have a case um, where I think it was Arthur C. Clarke that said any civilization with an advanced technology will, you know, that technology will seem like magic if it's advanced sufficiently beyond, you know, our own technology. Right. Um, I think some of these God beings are simply that. They're just um, human beings uh, from elsewhere that have a technology uh, so far beyond ours, particularly where, um, uh, you know, the technology of, the, you know, the human mind, what we would call psychic type things, right, um, you know, are concerned. But, you know, it doesn't even have to be that. They just might simply possess a technology that allows them to appear 
to do things that make them godlike. Now, that's not to say that the power that they would have over us, you know, is not real. Okay, but um, th- this is this is what I think. You know, uh, uh, this is what I think these these extraterrestrials who came here and influenced what became our, what I call the forgotten civilization, that advanced, technologically advanced human civilization that we're trying to reconstruct, that we see in all these megalithic things and the Antikythera device and such. Uh, I think the so-called aliens, the extraterrestrials who came here and influenced that, I think they were human, human beings. But human beings um, who understood their whole nature okay their whole nature of being not just physical but you know the 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 mental and the the let's call it the energy level or spiritual okay um you know these are beings that just happen to understand that more clearly than we most of us even do today and that of course made them appear like you know these amazing beings when actually when you look at my stuff um and i'm again i'm getting into this in the new book when you look at their activities um you, we were dealing with guys who either kind of uh, you know uh, were banished here or ended up here after you know some battle in some major war and kind of had to you know uh, dust themselves off and lick their wounds, and in my opinion, they helped us. They brought our technology up, and they helped us establish a civilization. And I get into this in my books, um, in order to uh, enlist us, kind of as reinforcements, so that when their foe, okay, their opponent arrived, they would have us to help them fight that battle. Now, what does that imply? That maybe they're not so godlike after all if they need us. In other words, if they can mm. give us, you know, flying machines and, you know, uh, uh, atom bombs or, or death lasers and all this amazing stuff, you know, to bring us up to speed or close to their level, then that says a lot about them and that says a lot about our own past, you know, and how much of it is being suppressed um, is one of the things uh, again I'm I'm going into in the new book, and why more more of the why. No, you definitely give us a lot of a lot of food for thought there. Yeah, and I know there's no easy way to summarize this, but could you tell us a little bit about how this relates to the possibility of an under ocean civilization? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's in there. That's in the mix. Again, um, if people have read uh, what I have put in a couple of books, um, starting Empire of the Will Three, the Nameless Ones, uh, the Nimza have a connection to these these very beings that you know emerged from under the seas. Um, Oannes, the Babylonian you know uh, fishman god, uh, that could be merely um, a, a, a form of advanced scuba technology. I mean, think about it. If you took a, you know, a modern-day scuba diver and you put him back you know, a thousand years ago and had him emerge in front of some fishermen throwing nets off the coast of you know, um, Greece, what would they think? They would think he's you know, a manfish god emerging from the sea, right? 
because oh well, here he comes. He's got these uh, these uh, frog type feet, and he can breathe underwater. And what's this weird thing he's wearing on his head? Um, you know, in in my opinion, these beings that we're talking about that brought this technology, that's the explanation for, you know, things like the the, the god beings, so to speak, that came from under the sea. Uh, they simply were, you know, I think it could be suggested they were hiding out, right? They had to come here to Earth, or they were in pursuit of their enemy, you know, fleeing the conflict. And, you know, they can go under the seas and they're submarine uh, shelters or craft or what have you and you know just kind of hide out there and just pretend to be uh, you know these these fish gods to the to the local human natives that they find so uh, yeah i i think that the um underwater ufos the usos the unidentified submersible objects right. and such um people should pay as much attention to those, of course, as they do the, the flying objects. Um, and in recent years, they are. You know, it's getting more attention. But, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think there's a connection there. And I, and I do talk about this in a couple of my books. So, Yeah, you definitely cover it in, in this book, uh, Origin. And, I mean, just to kind of pique the uh, listener's interest, I mean, the names uh, Alistair Crowley and J.P. Lovecraft make an appearance when you uh, tackle this. And it's uh, we could probably go into a whole other discussion with that, but I'm going to save that for another day, Genevieve. But I think it's an important point to make that the idea of different beings coming out of the water or coming from the sky can very easily be misinterpreted, at least um, amongst ancient societies, as gods. And that is one of the cruxes of your argument. Um, are we looking at gods as um, the dictionary describes them, or are we looking at gods in terms of they were interpreted as gods, but they weren't quite such? When you are looking at um, ancient writings, and particularly scriptures, okay, and you're talking about beings that come down from the sky in a roaring, fiery cloud and thunder, or you're talking about a being that emerges from the sea in, you know, some type of weird amphibious physical getup, you know, clothing. Mm -hmm. I think you are talking about beings that are just simply from another world who are not only misinterpreted as gods... They are perpetrating that misinterpretation. Oh, wow. Okay? Okay. Um, it, it has... I agree with um, what, uh, again, mentioning Joseph Farrell, he talks about Yahweh. You know, he points out that the word Yahweh is not a name of an individual, okay? It was a title. It was used prior to the Old Testament. It was a title. It means chief you know, or commander. Now, when you look at the behavior of this Yahweh character, okay, in Old Testament scripture, you're really looking at, you know, possibly a psychopath. You're looking at this <laughs> being who comes from another world and, you know, uh, tells this one particular select group of uh, people that, you know, if they kiss his butt enough properly... 
he'll do all sorts of great things like help them steal other people's real estate or, or mm-hmm. you know, resources and such. And all they got to do is go slaughter every man, woman, and child, and it's all theirs. Right. Oh, and by the way, he's a jealous god. And, yeah, um, slaughter your best when – you, when you slaughter your animals, bring me the best cuts and, you know, cook it just so, right? right. I mean, think about this. And again, uh, we're talking an individual who sets himself up as an almighty God. What does he have to be jealous of? That makes no sense. Mm. Okay? Right. Um, So, you know, when you're talking about Yahweh, you're, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, others, you're talking about this extraterrestrial, you know, uh, military commander who came here with his group of, you know, guys, his unit, and they saw a good thing. Hey, let's lord it over these beings, these people here that are still, you know, wearing sandals and, uh, you know, running around in the, in the desert and, uh, you know, living in rudimentary, you know, mud houses and stuff. Let's lord it over them. Let's set ourselves up as God. Okay, and um, it's what's interesting is that it is so ingrained in religion that I know I ruffle feathers when I talk about this amongst you know friends of mine because they're still latched on to that that conditioning. Um, But I'd like to throw out there. in spite of my sincere, you know, um, belief in this, you know, version of Yahweh that I'm telling, I, this surprises some people. I'm personally not an atheist by any stretch of the imagination. I, I see these beings as just a bunch of cosmic a-holes who came here, okay? But I still am convinced that there are these other actual real God, you know, beings and, and such and so forth. I don't go to a church or anything. But right. um, again, uh, you know, I'm not an atheist. I see it. I see it as a different situation. It's kind of like for those, again, the literary geeks. Um, if you're familiar with the works of Sir Walter Scott, you know his version of Robin Hood and the story Ivanhoe and such. What you have in Robin Hood, and you know, and, and for simplicity's sake, go watch the old Errol Flynn movie. It is the best version. Um, ignore the Kevin Costner crap. <laughs> um, essentially, what you've got is Prince John. Okay, while the while good King Richard is off fighting the Crusades, okay? Remember, think within the context of the story you're being told here. Uh, forget your opinion of history. Within the context of this, you know, Robin Hood version, Richard's the good guy, okay? And Prince John, sitting on his throne, is the bad guy. He's usurped the throne. And he's a jerk, okay? Right. Um, look at it this way. And I think Walter Scott was doing this on purpose. Uh, and others that write this story tell this story. Prince John is the Yahweh, okay? The jerk who, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the big guy, the real God, what have you. He's off in the other corner of the galaxy, you know, overseeing important things, but I'm going to come here and set myself up, you know, in his role. And I'm a jerk. I'm the Prince John. And, of course, in the story, Robin Hood, he knows this. He's an ally of, you know, good King Richard. And so that's why he bucks him and resists him at every, at every chance. And then, of course, in the end, good King Richard returns and, you know, uh, cleans things up and kicks some butt and all is well again. I, you know, I think it's possible that what Walter Scott and the other writers telling the story, what they were trying to say there is um, an allegory about something they learned about these beings and what 
they understood was going to happen. Um, so th- there's some food for thought there, but uh, that uh, that's my view on who this Yahweh character was. And I'd like to know, um, at least in your opinion, how how does it contrast and or potentially complement deistic religions? Obviously, a lot of people that might be listening to theories such as this will be part of some sort of deistic religion. Mm-hmm. How can they, if at all, incorporate this into their system without compromising their beliefs? Ah, uh, yes. Well, um, one way is to, let's, okay, you know, here we are having this conversation, you know, physically we're, you guys are in L.A., right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. We're physically in the in the U.S. and, you know, the U.S., or, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a big chunk of Americans who are Christians. So let's take that allegory, okay? Um, for example, from a Christian perspective, um, you know, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and, and you have this figure, Christ, who says some very interesting things in the New Testament regarding this, these followers of, you know, Yahweh and such. Uh, uh, and he even makes a comment to them at one point where he says, you are um, the sons of your father, the devil. Now, there are some scholars, theologians, okay, who say that what this implies, what Christ is saying, is that he's pointing out there the truth about Yahweh. And again, you have this Christ figure in the Christian vernacular who describes this almighty God being who is understanding and loving, and you never hear him, you know, he doesn't talk about how jealous he is or bloodthirsty. So you've got to say, wow, the God that the Christ figure talks about um, sounds much more like what you hear from Buddha and, and you know, the, these other, you, you know, more um, uh, God's a gentle being, you know, that kind of thing, this loving God. Um, it sounds like a completely different entity than this, I, I say Yahoo because it's close to Yahweh, than this Yahoo knucklehead a-hole in the Old Testament. Okay? Um, so what, you, what I would recommend is that you know, whatever particular context you're in, spiritually or, or religiously, you know, um, trust your gut, trust your heart and mind, make your own judgment, you know, um, uh, just kind of look at your particular context and ask yourself the hard questions, you know, um, be objective, look at what your particular scripture says, and if there's something in it that, you know, your, your initial instinctive reaction is, I got a problem with that, or that's just flat out wrong, then, you know, consider what the source of that piece you're having trouble with is, because as we know, these scriptures, these religions, these were created by, you know, mankind, greatly flawed systems, okay, um, uh, and, and very often designed to benefit an elite group. Ooh, there's that word again. Um, don't, I, I, look, for me, it's a whole other conversation, my opinion of example, um, Roman Catholicism in the Vatican, okay? Don't get me started on <laughs> them. Um, but that's an example of what we're talking about here. Um, so what people have to do if you're very much into, you know, what we in the Christian world call church, um, and, and that, you, you, you really got to ask yourself the hard questions. And, you know, if you can find where 
you can properly fit into that after looking at these things, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like I said, I am not an atheist by any stretch of the imagination, um, certainly not because of this stuff that I acknowledge. It's just when you look closely at it, I came away, um, again, there's nothing that disproved the, the existence of a God to me. Nothing. Now, there are things that disprove what I was taught in church, right? Yeah, absolutely, all day long. But I never found anything, and, and, and I don't like to go too much into the personal experience thing, but I'll just say my personal experiences with the weird and the strange and the, all that and the other, um, I'm convinced <laughs> right. there's this, there's this uh, being out there, and there are these other you know, God beings out there. They have convinced me. But that's personal, and, you know, every person... I, I don't proselytize. Gotcha. I admit. <laughs> <laughs> I think you definitely uh, left people with a, a lot to think about. And I think it takes, uh, it takes a brave person to uh, start walking down that path. Walter, we're on the home stretch of this show, and I okay. can't let you go without tackling the uh the topic of the breakaway civilizations there's so much in your book that i would love to cover and i knew we wouldn't have enough time to to do so but i definitely want to talk about the breakaway civilizations i think it was near the top of the show where you mentioned that there was a group and you mentioned that in your book origin uh that there was a group that seems to have been part of a breakaway civilization on board a Tesla ship of some kind. Can you tell us about that? This particular breakaway civilization that, that you're referring to, um, and uh, it, it is my personal theory that there are two that emerged from this 19th century airship okay, um, technology milieu, and it's um, subset technology development. Um, the particular one, and, I, and again, this is theoretical, I think emerged from this legend of the Tesla ship that attempted to go to Mars. Now, uh, that in itself, again, is a, a whole other discussion. Um, however, the clues... And the context, the milieu of what was going on, has left me suspecting that there is a nugget of truth to that legend. Somewhere in there, there's a nugget of truth to that legend. And as I continue to look at it, and as things continue to emerge, um, I'm, I continue to be convinced that it is a worthy um, road to go down. Now, the problem with it is I say in the book that um, that they were and I explain why they were opposed to the German NIMSA okay now again I'm going to be getting into this in the new book a lot is in the new book so I won't go too far down that road but um, the, the problem with my theory is when you look at the 20th century and those two world wars and all that problem that started with these dang Germans, these Reich-obsessed Germans, um, and let's be specific, these Prussian brand of Germans, right. okay? Not all Germans are of that Prussian ilk. 
okay? Um, the, the, the problem with my theory is if there was this other breakaway civilization, this rival organization that emerged, as I say, in um, it's 1903, I apologize, not 1908. I said 08 earlier. If they emerged out of whatever really happened with this Tesla airship and alleged story going to Mars, if they, and it's my opinion that they established their breakaway at that time, if they did this and they were truly a rival to NIMSA, the problem with my theory is, where were they? Where were they during World War I? Um, where were they during World War II? Where have they been since the military-industrial complex has raised its ugly head? Okay? Now, World War I and the years leading up to World War II, you could explain. If they had just founded themselves, they were developing. They were, you know, they probably couldn't have even begun to think about taking on NIMSA to whatever degree NIMSA had developed at that point. Okay? So World War I, you could almost excuse their absence. But by the time you get to World War II, again, it, it's legitimate for people to ask, hey, Walter, where the hell were these guys during World War II? And where have they been since? I have not yet found the sufficient answer to that. I am still seeking that. But just their, their absence does not negate the possibility. Actually, the best way to, uh, what, what, what is it? Uh, it, it's a famous old adage, but it was said really good on um, the, the, the X-Files, you know, uh, why Mr. Mulder, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, are you not convinced? And Mulder, I believe, says, because all the evidence to the contrary is not entirely convincing. It's kind of like that. Just, right. you know, don't confuse you know, the fact that they were absent with the idea that they don't exist. And I'm trying to solve that mystery, or better yet, answer that question, and I hope to, you know, at some point, and maybe I will in, you know, the research on this, this new book, but... Um, uh, that's that's the mystery of them, and and I do think they have emerged recently, but that's another one of those conversations for another time. <laughs> right, right. It, it rem I think it was Donald Rumsfeld that said, like, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, or something like that. <laughs> that's that's the phrase I was looking for. There we. And how much are those people that are on our Earth, our planet? How much are they integrated into our society? Because, yes, they're breakaway civilizations, but presumably they still interact and they're, in a way, undercover. Well, so how much are they in here with us, amongst us? That's, I, I don't think anyone except a true insider could answer that, and I don't think a true insider is going to answer that. Then you can parenthetically... Uh, classify that as what Walter thinks of these so-called whistleblowers. Again, another conversation. But um, here's the thing. Because they are from us, they can reside here and move about us uh, as easily as they want to, as much as they want to. Now, um, I mentioned earlier you know, there's a difference between a breakaway civilization and a secret space program. If you're talking about just a secret space program, you're talking about something that could just be a classified part of our own military or a classified part of NASA or, you know, ESA or, you know, any other nation's space program or military, okay? Mm -hmm. That's a program that, you know, remains classified and 
um, they run the risk of being found out because as Catherine Austin Fitz's research, you know, demonstrates and others also, um, you can look at the money trail and see where the resources, the material resources, the, the finances are being pumped into that. Okay, a breakaway civilization, as you know, Dolan defined, and as I paraphrased earlier, they are of a sufficient uh, wealth and insufficient possession of independent resources that they are. That there's the key word: they're independent, and that's very, very important. That's the distinction between a breakaway civilization and just a mere secret space program. A secret space program does not have to be independent of our known civilization to exist. On the contrary, it's probably most likely, in most cases, going to be dependent upon our known civilization and resources. However, a breakaway civilization, which is independent of us and our thing, so to speak, uh, it can possess its own secret space program. See? Mm -hmm. So it depends on how much they want to be involved, which brings us back to my book I'm writing now. Um, it's going to go into detail, more detail than I ever have before, on exactly to what extent I think NIMSA has involved itself in our world. And it's not good. And, you know, it's funny because when you said that they run the risk of being found out and things like that, it kind of reminded me of the situation that happened with uh, Gary McKinnon, the Scottish uh, hacker that apparently gained yeah. access to some very, very uh, uh, I, interesting information. I'll say that much. Is that kind of what oh, you're yeah. talking about? So, again, I'll reiterate for, to, to help people make that distinction in their minds. A breakaway civilization can hide itself. Okay, it can make itself undetectable. It can it can hide itself. A secret space program that is, you know, if we're just talking that, um, if it's not, if the secret space program is not a part of that breakaway civilization, it cannot hide itself so easily. It it, it can be uncovered. So there's there's the difference when you hear those phrases bandied about. They're not exactly the same. Gotcha. That's the point. And since we're nearing the end of the show, um, I do want to throw in at least another question from the chat. This is more of a comment, so I guess you can comment on the comment. Ghetto Goth Love, <laughs> that's the <laughs> screen name, says earthquakes, floods, hurricanes are all symptoms of this dimension reset. What do you say to that? <laughs> I think I, I think I see the point of the comment, and and I would agree. These are these are clues that there is something uh, going on. Somebody's doing something with a rather spectacular technology. Yeah, and these are these would be clues um, to that, and that gets into. Um, what when you mentioned earlier about the Mandela effect? Ah. Mm. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, no, and he he. Well, I assume it's a he. I don't know that. Um, they are saying resetting from time travel dilemmas. Um, that was the next wow. comment following up on that. Uh, this rabbit hole can go pretty pretty far down, I guess. That's a topic that I do find very interesting, and, and again, another conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> so many more to come, I hope. <laughs> uh, origin, the 19th century emergence of the 20th century breakaway civilizations by Walter Bosley, who's our guest tonight. Walter, 
Why don't you tell people where they can get a copy of this book and, and some of your other books that, as I mentioned earlier, you definitely tackle some very, very fascinating topics. Again, um, I sell all my books print-on-demand at lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U.com. Put in my name or put in the title of the book, and um, you'll, you know, you'll find my sales page, the Walter Bosley uh, sales page, or Lost Connet Library. That's my company, um, or it'll take you to the individual book. Um, I would like to add that the Disneyland book, Latitude 33, um, is the only book I have that remains on Amazon Kindle. So I think you can get that for two bucks on, on Amazon as a Kindle book right now. Amazing. It's the only one I left on uh, Kindle. But, uh, you know, again, the printed books, it takes them a, you know, about five days to print it, and it takes them just a couple of days or a week to get it to you, depending upon the shipping you choose. A little more than Kindle. But you get a printed book, and uh, it's worth the difference. This was one of the books, and I'll be honest, it took me a little longer to read it because this was the type of book that I would have to put down and get on Google and uh, cross-check stuff. Not because I didn't believe you, but because oh. it sounded so incredible that I just right. had to make sure that this was true. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely check it out, folks. Uh, Walter Bosley, uh, lulu.com, uh, just type his name, and you will definitely see that he has quite the, uh, the list of books, and I'm sure you're going to find more than one that's going to pique your interest. Walter, thank you so much for being our guest tonight. We really, really appreciate it, and, and hopefully we can have you back again to talk some more about some of these uh, amazing and strange uh, topics. Well, thank you guys for having me on, and I would love to come back and, uh, and talk with you some more about stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much, <laughs> Take Walter. it easy, Walter. Thank Enjoy you. the rest of your night. You guys have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Walter Bosley, author of this amazing, amazing book, once again, Origin, The 19th Century Emergence of the 20th Century Breakaway Civilization. Sorry, I had to grab the book again um, just to make sure I read the title correctly. Definitely, definitely pick up a copy and check out some of his other books. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. And hopefully we can have him back um, in the near oh future to talk he, some more about this he's stuff. He's definitely that type of guy. Like, I mean, we only saw him in brief passing comparatively when we saw him at Contact in the Desert. But gosh, that's the type of guy you can talk to for hours and hours and not get bored. Ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. So definitely check out his books. Uh, and uh, that being said, boy, it's been an amazing show. It's been an interesting show. And I really would love to hear what people have to say about it. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash WOTR radio. You can also keep up with us on Twitter and our website, WOTR radio on Twitter and WOTR radio.com. It's the uh, website URL. Give us a like on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash West of the Rockies. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on uh, Twitter, joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uwe. Uh, again, you can catch her Thursday nights, 8 p.m. Pacific time, right here hosting uh, her own, very own show. Uh, no added flavors, music, fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more. We're going to go out with some, since we're talking about, you know, all these UFOs and things of that nature, we're going to go out with... Uh, Jim Sullivan, again, if you haven't checked out the interview, you can go to our website, wotrradio.com, or our YouTube channel, 
and listen to this interview we did with Matt Sullivan of Light in the Attic Records. And we discussed the mystery of Jim Sullivan and how UFOs play into that. All right, guys, that being said, take care, be safe, God bless, don't do anything too crazy. We definitely want to see you back next week and when we'll have, I'm sure, another uh, interesting uh, topic of discussion uh, for our listeners. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Good night. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.